start the week, because just remember, Sunday is actually the first day of the week. Depends on your calendar, sometimes they put it that way, um, sometimes they make it the end of the week. But when we come together to be encouraged and reminded of the very things that Jesus Christ has done for us on our behalf, why there is purpose and meaning in the life in which we live. Uh, my, my name is Steve Adams, if you're visiting, if you're a regular, my name is also Steve Adams. Um, pastor here at Eastgate Bible Church, we've been preaching our way through the book of Acts. This is the point to which we are up to. Those who are regular here, and I usually give you in advance what passages we're covering, would think, Steve sold us short. He told us we're going 1 to 48 this week, and you're only getting 1 to 29. That's because it was going to end up being a really, really, really long sermon. So I've broken it up into two pieces, so we will cover the rest of the chapter next week, but we're only going to halfway through chapter 11 this year, um, and then we will continue with some more acts again next year. So let us open up in prayer as we depend upon God to speak through his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you that it tells us that it has given us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness, and that all of it is profitable, that we might be complete and equipped for every good work. Lord, we thank you that as you work by your spirit to inspire these people to write these things and they were preserved for us, that we might know you, that we might know how we respond to you. We pray that the very purposes that you had, that your spirit might be at work within us this morning, that we might hear the very things that you want us to hear and that we might willingly receive and respond to them. Lord, I know I am just a, a broken vessel, a sinful man, and Lord, I desperately need you to work through me in my thoughts, in my words, help me to speak faithfully and clearly in expressing your heart to all of us this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Who likes change? I put it to you, most people aren't a big fan of change. Some people are really flexible. They can go all over the shop. But what do you do when someone presents to you an idea that completely goes opposite to something that you've held very deeply and firmly for a long time? Now, I warn you, brace yourselves down. I'm going to absolutely shatter the world of some people right here in this moment. Here is supposed to be the original patent for the toilet roll holder, which shows how toilet paper is supposed to be dispensed. And it settles all debates once and for all. But I can imagine straight away... We have brought this building into two camps of people. The person who wants to turn to someone who they live with and say, I told you! <laughs> then there's the other people who's like, that's from the 1800s, dear. We've moved on from that. But I wonder how many people who are rear-dispensing people 
Now that you've seen this, how many people are really going to go home and turn that roll around? I reckon the answer to that question will be zero. It's what I've always done. It's what I'm familiar with. It's what I do. Now, this is clearly a really unimportant, trivial matter. But it shows us how resistant we are to changing something that we have held for a long period of time that we don't want to change. Sometimes it's kind of funny how reluctant we are to change views, opinions, practices, traditions that we have held for a long time. But the truth is, when we become a Christian, everything about us and our world changes. Our identities completely changed. Our loyalties completely changed. Up until that point in time, I was my ultimate master. I was my ultimate authority. I ruled my life. I could do whatever I thought was good and right. The Bible uses the expression, says we're being brought out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of his glorious son. So our loyalties, we have a king, we have a ruler. And because of our newfound loyalties, and because we are indeed a new creation, not just a renovated creation, then what it means to live in relationship with Jesus is going to call us to do things that are completely different than things that we have held for a really long period of time. When we become a follower of Jesus, things that we've always done, things that we've always thought, are going to get challenged. Now, this is our third last in our series in Acts for this year. It was supposed to be second last till I split it in two. But it as we saw at the beginnings of the early church, we've seen thousands come to trust in Jesus as Lord as the gospel was faithfully proclaimed. And so the next series we're going to look at once we um, take a break from Acts, we're going to look at First Thessalonians. A letter written to an early church of young Christians who have turned from idols to the living God where Paul is encouraging them to continue in the, what they've begun in their salvation. But one of our defining verses in the book of Acts has been Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which you're probably tired of hearing week after week. But it kind of gives you an overview of the book and it kind of gives us a bit of an idea where we're up to now. Jesus said to his followers, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we saw that the gospel explosion that happened in, in Jerusalem, there at Pentecost when the Spirit came, and even on that one day you got two or three thousand who come to trust in Jesus on that day. We see various other events, particularly through Peter's preaching ministry of the gospel. Then as the church scatters after Stephen is martyred, we see the everyday Christians and, and Philip taking the good news of the gospel out to the lands of Judea and Samaria. But Acts chapter 10 marks a really significant transition. Up until this point in time, every person who has come and responded to the gospel has had some Jewish connection. 
this is the first time where we see the gospel going to not only Gentile land, but Gentile person. That is, someone who has no ethnic connection to Israel whatsoever. And all of this began with God giving two men a vision that brings them together. And so this morning we'll look at Cornelius' vision in 1 to 8, Peter's vision in verses 9 to 23a, and then looking at Peter's changed perspective in the second half of 23 through to 29. So the first man we're introduced to is, is Cornelius. Both his name and the description that we have about him is, is clearly he's a Roman citizen. He is clearly a Gentile. Now, as a centurion means that he has some authority over a hundred soldiers within the Roman army. But Jewish people weren't big fans of the Romans, were they? Not only because they weren't Jewish and they were Gentile, but they were the authorities in the land of the Jews. But one thing is really interesting about that is you go through and you look through the Gospels, these people who were looked down upon by the Jews, there are a number of occasions where Roman centurions are presented as being favourable in their response to Jesus and sometimes in a way that is actually brings to shame some of the Israelites' response to Jesus. So, for example, in Luke chapter 7, there's a centurion who has a servant who's sick and he comes to Jesus and he explains to Jesus, he goes, no, I'm a man too who's got men under my authority and I just say the word and they go. So he says, you just say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus responds and says, I haven't seen faith like this anywhere in Israel. At Jesus' crucifixion in Matthew 27 and Luke 23, there's a centurion who's seen Jesus dying on the cross, praises God and says, surely this man was innocent. Surely this man was the Son of God. Now, Cornelius too is a man who thinks much of God. He's described as being a devout, God-fearing man who was respected by the Jews, had a reputation for giving to the poor, for having a devout prayer life. But where we here described that he was a one who feared God or was a God-fearer, that is a technical term which describes someone who is a Gentile, that is not of any Jewish descent, who is part of a local Jewish synagogue, holds the beliefs of the Jews, but he hasn't taken that extra step of being what they called a proselyte. What a proselyte was, was a Gentile who'd come into the community of God's people by becoming physically a Jew through the act of circumcision. So Cornelius doesn't come into that, he hasn't gone to that extent. And because of that, while he's part of the local synagogue, he would have had very limited activity and participation. Now, from a Jewish perspective, they would have thought of him about as being someone who had right beliefs, heading on the right path, but they would have ultimately thought of him as, he's not one of us, he is still very different from us, he is still a Gentile. He was respected by the Jews, known for his giving to the poor and for being a man of prayer, and here we encounter him at the ninth hour, which, as we saw back in Acts chapter 3, is one of the dedicated set times of prayer for the Jewish people. And here is Cornelius in time of prayer. While he's coming before God in prayer, he sees a vision of an angel. 
And essentially, the message of the angel is, God has seen and recognised your charitable giving. God has seen you seeking him in prayer. And the odd response to that is, he says, so I want you to go send some men to Joppa, 50 k's away, to get Peter to bring him back to talk to you. Now, why I think that's particularly odd is, he's got a message here from an angel from God who could have very easily told him what he needs to know. Yet he says, I want you to go send people 50 k's away to get Peter. Why? Why can't an angel just tell him that? I think we see throughout the book of Acts and throughout the rest of the Bible that God's plans to reach the world is through people. Now Cornelius doesn't know why he needs Peter pretty impressive experience he's had he's had an encounter with an angel of God he's told him that he needs Peter so happily he sends people away to go get Peter and then the scene moves to another day the next day takes a bit of time to travel the 50 k's where we see Peter now in prayer now the timing of the events we're in the sixth hour of the day so it's midday Peter's up on the roof and praying just at the time when Cornelius' messengers, they're almost there. It's kind of like God is kind of orchestrating things, working it all together. One thing that shouldn't be missed, though, for both Peter and Cornelius, this vision comes in the context when they are seeking God in prayer. Now, in saying that, I'm not trying to make the connection that if you're a really godly person, when you pray, you should expect to see visions and say that's the normal expectation. I've never experienced a vision in the entirety of my life. So I'm certainly not saying consider yourself as being less spiritual if you never have an experience of that nature. But I think there's a basic premise that God delights to reveal himself to those who diligently seek him. And sometimes I fear that we live such rushed, busy lives that we miss out on so much. That sometimes our approach to God in prayer is, dear God, thank you for this, thank you for this, help me with this, help me with this, give me this, give me this, amen, out the door, gone, let's go do something else. Imagine if that was the way I related to Sarah. I just unload everything, And that's my issue. Walk away. Never stop, listen to her. Never ask her anything. Never talk to her. How do you think intimacy in a relationship is going to go where it's just one person just talks and takes off? I think sometimes we might miss out on a lot because we don't give God time to speak. Or we just begin with the expectation that God doesn't. While Peter's praying, he gets super hungry, hangry possibly, falls into a trance where he encounters a vision himself. Now his vision isn't an angel from God telling him a message. He gets this visual picture of a sheet coming down full of animals. It was the world's first mixed grill, you could say. Now, it says that it's all types of different animals, four-footed animals, reptiles and birds. 
In other words, it is a mixture of both animals from a Jewish perspective that were clean animals and animals that were not clean. So it's going to come a massive surprise to Peter to hear God, who gave the Jewish food laws, say to him, rise, kill and eat. And because it seems a little bit out of the blue, there's been some really interesting interpretations of this passage, particularly if you just read the vision aspect of it. To give you some examples of things that I've heard being said. Some say, well, this vision is just a a repetition of the idea that now the the Jewish food laws have come to an end. And we already have the the narrative note in Mark 19 that Jesus has declared all foods now to be clean. And this is what's going on here. But if you read through the chapter that we just looked at, it's pretty clear that the central point of what's been communicated, as in the purpose and meaning of the vision, isn't so much focused on food itself. Then there are some who look at this passage and say, well, the food law has never changed. What, what God is doing here is he's testing Peter to see whether or not he'll do the right thing. Now that flies in face of the character of God because James tells us that God is not tempted by sin nor can he tempt anyone to sin. What is the clear meaning of being here is that God is communicating using food as an example not to call unclean things that God is now declaring clean even if previously they've been presented as being unclean. The clear point, as we'll see as we go through the passage, is he's making Peter known, using this as an illustration, these Gentiles that you used to once think were unclean, have nothing to do with, I have declared them clean. But how does that relate to the food law aspect of things? I've heard someone say, this has got nothing to do with food laws. Don't even use it, this verse. My thoughts are, If you're going to provide an example to teach something, it kind of helps that the example that you're using as an illustration is true. Otherwise, it's not a good example to use, is it? And therefore, the command to Peter effectively is to call something unclean that I've now called clean is to disobey the very voice of God. And for us meat-eating fellas... The blessing of wonderful times together eating bacon are much to be celebrated. But imagine this is for Peter. His whole life was like, no way. Certain things you do not touch, you never have anything to do with. It will defile you through and through. And that's possibly why we see it's repeated on three occasions. Rise, kill and eat. Don't call unclean that which I have called clean. Yesterday I was at an event that John Dixon was doing over at St Bart's, The Doubter's Guide to Jesus, and they had a wonderful quote which really fitted in nicely, so I've, I've stolen it. It's from the Mishnah. Now, the Mishnah is a written record of the oral traditions of the Jews, so of the, of the key teaching of the rabbis that people learnt um, by rote. And this gives you something of the, the history, the background of Peter's thinking regarding Gentiles. It says, the tax collectors who enter the house, the house is unclean. The thieves who enter the house, unclean is only the place 
trodden by the feet of the thieves. If there is a Gentile with them or a woman, everything's unclean. Now, what we've seen as you go through the Gospels, you see the, um, the standoff nature of the way people were about Jesus doing things with tax collectors. He's like, yeah, that makes the house clean. Gentiles, everything unclean. This would have been the mindset of Peter as he receives this vision. Now, Peter doesn't seem to instantly understand. As a matter of fact, it's very clear that Peter's perplexed. He's like, what are you telling me? What's going on? Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he'd seen meant, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate. And they called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision... The spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. So you can see the known hostility. When these Gentiles come to the house where Peter's staying, they're kind of a bit standoffish. They're there at the gate calling out, "Is, Is Peter in here? And while Peter is kind of wondering, just perplexed, what on earth is this vision about? What is it that God's telling me to call clean that I previously thought was unclean, here he has three men who have come to him who previously he would have thought, no way they're entering my house, they're going to defile everything. And just in case Peter was, if he was still unsure what their meaning was, he gets a word from the Spirit saying, go down to meet these men, go without hesitation and go with them. One thing that's not so clear comes across in our English, that t- word which I've got underlined there is, is accompany them without hesitation, which, remember, if your whole life you would have had hesitation, that word translated hesitation can also mean without distinction. Go down there not only to do so quickly and freely, but without looking at them in any distinct way which you formerly would have done. As Peter goes down and looks into the eyes of these three Gentile men, he's pretty clear that he knows what God has been communicating to him. Happily announcing, I'm the one you seek, what are you here for? And they say, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who was well spoken by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and that you hear what you might have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. That's pretty massive, isn't it? Just moments before, there is no chance that Peter would have ever contemplated possibly even having a conversation with a Gentile, never mind inviting them into his house or going into a Gentile's house. Now as God has given him this vision, the Spirit has guided him to go down to these people, it says, so he invited them in to be his guests. It would be kind of like a a KKK member saying, African-Americans, I've heard a message from God, invite them into my house. Such as that long-standing hostility. When a person comes to Christ, they're not just improved, we're a new creation. And the Christian life is an ongoing renewal of becoming more of this new creation that we were created to be. 
Now we know in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, the famous verse, you're a new creation in Christ, the old is gone, the new has come. But just a couple of verses before that, in verses 14 and 15, we read these. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that the one who has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him, who for their sake died and was raised. So before, we always, we live for ourselves. What I did, what I thought was right, what felt good to me, that's what dictated everything I did. But we were saved that we would no longer live for ourselves, but we would live for him. We call Jesus Lord. Lord means he's our master. He's the one to whom we serve. He's our ruler. And in this one encounter with God, Peter happily turns from something that was once so foreign and gross to him and happily walks in obedience because God has shown him this thing. Not only to engage them in, but to invite them into his house and happily go with them to Cornelius' house. He's had a changed perspective. When you go through the Gospels, Jesus says and does a whole lot of things that were contrary to the status quo and he got in a lot of trouble for it. People didn't like it when he said things about the Sabbath, when he did things on the Sabbath. We see some things that are contrary to the status quo as we go throughout the book of Acts. We see the unfolding plan of God revealing more and more. When I talk about it being unfolding, it's more the, um, the practical unfolding of what has been promised a long, long time ago. It's not something new coming out. We see the roots of this even go back to Genesis chapter 12 when God promised that through one of the seed of Abraham, all nations would be blessed. It's not like a plan B. And next week as we look at that a bit more, we'll look at some of the ways in which Gentiles were included on exceptions into the community of God's people and how God always had a plan which included all of the nations. But as this plan has unfolded throughout the book of Acts, we saw the gospel received by Samaritans. Remember what happened? What did the apostles do? They sent Peter and John to go check it out because they were a bit sus that the Samaritans would respond to the same gospel to be part of the same people of Jesus. But now as Peter goes to Cornelius' house, a Gentile, He's quite a wise fellow and he takes some fellow Jews with him. Saying so he rose with him and some of the brothers, that's fellow Jews from Joppa, Jewish Christians that is, accompanied him there. Like if people were spurious about whether or not Samaritans could enter into a relationship with God, then they're going to be pretty standoffish when you say that Gentiles have come to trust and enter into the exact same conversion as Gentiles, not by making them Jews by circumcision, but acceptable perfectly before God as Gentiles. So he takes some fellow Jewish Christians with him, both for to verify Peter's claim, because some people are going to think he's a bit weird, but also too, so as they come back, they can declare what God has done amongst the Gentiles as well. So on day four now, since Cornelius first had a vision, they come back to Caesarea where Cornelius is, there's no doubt Cornelius is excited. A, because he sent men, because he expected something happened. But during this time, he's invited all his relatives, all of his friends around to hear what Peter might going to say. Isn't that like the preacher's dream? 
The preacher's going somewhere and they know that God has given them something to say. But then when they get there, everyone there is expectantly waiting to hear something that's going to change them. I wonder when you're getting together this morning, wishing you maybe you had a sleep in, maybe you're trying to wrangle kids getting into the car. If you're on your way here thinking, I'm actually expecting to hear something from God this morning. I expect when, when God's word is opened up that I'm going to hear something from God. I wonder if that's our approach when we read the Bible throughout the week. Do we think, I'm a Christian, therefore I read the Bible? Or do we think, this is God's living and active word. I expect that he's going to say something to me. I expect to encounter the living God. Cornelius' excitement is quite clear. He bows down and worships Peter as he arrives. Peter was pretty quick to correct him on that one. And this isn't an isolated occasion. We get to Acts chapter 14 and we see people try to offer sacrifices to Paul and he corrects them and says, no, we are just men too. The apostle John in Revelation 22 bows down to worship an angel and the angel says, no, don't. Worship God, don't worship us. Every single occasion where people or angels receive worship, they say, that belongs to God alone. Which makes it important to remember when people do that towards Jesus, he didn't correct them because it was right for him to receive worship as God. And as Peter addresses the people, he begins with the elephant in the room. Jewish-Gentile relationships. This is a bit weird. There's a Jew in the Gentile house. So he's not backwards and beginning there. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. To associate with or visit anyone from another nation. That's, that, was, that was Peter's position at the beginning of the, the day before. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So very clear, Peter's understood this is the meaning of the vision. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked them, why have you sent for me? And this is where our passage, or where I've chosen to divide up the larger passage where we finish today. And that's a thought that I really want us to ponder for a moment. What God had revealed to Peter totally went through the convictions, the values and practices that had been so deeply ingrained in him all of his life up until that point in time. Yet when God showed this to him, how does Peter respond? So when I sent for, I came without objection. Now we know it's in our human nature, we don't like change at all. We've seen in some useless little trivial example of the, of the toilet paper how reluctant we are to change. Or if you're someone who's committed to a Holden or a Ford, you would never even think of owning the other car, even though the actual differences in either turning your toilet paper around or having a car with a different badge on it really doesn't make that big a difference. Although still I don't want to buy a Ford anyway other than the fact that it may require us to swallow our pride or do something about our fear of change. But when Peter was shown something and the God who has provided his salvation, as Jesus has died on his behalf, calls him to let go of something he's held so dearly, 
he does so without objection. I know my first response would be if something came towards me that was different than what I'd always done, I'd probably want to think of the reasons why I didn't have to. Now, every single one of us, we've got a history, we've got habits, we've got traditions either with our families or the culture in which we grew up in, certain convictions, certain ways we've always done things. And we've got a past where we once used to do, be our own ruler, do whatever we wanted to. But when we come to Christ, we are a new creation. We have new loyalty. Jesus is our Lord. And not surprisingly, when we read the words of our God, they constantly challenge us about the things that we have held onto so deeply for so long. Asking us to let go of long-held views, long-held practices, long-held prejudices, and embrace kingdom values, kingdom practices. Yet sometimes we're a bit reluctant. It's going to be the same for every single one of us. It might express itself more so in different ways than others. If I was a person who has constantly been a person who was bitter and angry, to read Jesus' words, to love your enemies and pray for them, it's going to be hard because this is how I've always responded. This is who I am I'd be trying to answer. If it's selfishness to read in Philippians 2 that we have to think more highly of the other than ourselves. It calls us to something different. When you've finally got 100 terabytes of all your favourite music, all of your favourite movies all together in one place and you encounter God's word where it tells you not to steal and you think, I like all this stuff I've got. When you've got deep emotional feelings for a person you know you can't marry, Either because they're the same gender as yourself or there's something else in the scriptures that tells you you can't marry them. How do you respond? When you've long held this idea that there's only one particular type of music that's glorifying to God or one particular version or translation of the Bible that's acceptable to God. God's never said either of those things. What we see regularly throughout the New Testament letters is We need to put off the old self and put on the new. In particular, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, we put to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit. Because we know in and of ourselves, we can't put to death those old things. They're so deeply ingrained. Unless God helps, it's not going to happen. But the same one who is inspired and worked through the Scriptures to write these things is the same one who lives in you and I to enable us to walk in these things. Now, Peter has shown us as an example, he acted without objection. Now, it's very easy to casually read that and think, oh, yeah, it must have been really easy for Peter. I reckon that would have been tough. Your whole life, you thought, you come into, they come into your house, everything's ruined. Everything's defiled. But to, on that day, to enter into something that you had thought was so vile beforehand, it would have been tough. He probably would have even felt uncomfortable doing it at first. But he knew the one who was calling him to do it. He knew the character of God who had called him to do it. This is the God who he had clung to for his very salvation. 
the one who had sent his son to, to bear his punishment on his behalf, the one whose character and everything he's done up in his life up until this point has been for his good. Sometimes I get frustrated with myself. How frequently I come up with excuses for things which I know clearly God has called me to do in his scriptures and I either have an excuse or I don't trust that God can bring about that change. May we be a people who know him so deeply, who have such a sense of awe of who our God is and love him so deeply that when he says, I want you to move from here to here, even when we don't feel like we say, God, even though I don't feel like it, you've told me this is wrong and I know my heart by nature is corrupt and desires wrong things. Forgive me for my love for this. And help me to change to become this because I know that I can't become this on my own. I know I've shared this many times before. That was my biggest struggle in coming to faith was knowing that my life where it was and the Christian life were very worlds and worlds apart. And I thought, this can't become this and maybe this doesn't want to become this. And even though it was probably taken out of context But this is how God used it. At this particular point in time, I was driving. The word darkness was stuck in my head. It described my condition very well. And so I flipped through my little Bible. The first verse I looked at, not first in the list, Isaiah 42, 16. I will lead the blind by ways they have not known. Along unfamiliar paths I will guide them. I will turn the darkness into light before them and make the rough places smooth. These are the things I will do, declares the Lord. I will not forsake them. This is our God. As we see in First Thessalonians, the God who calls you is faithful. He will do it. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have made us new. You have reconciled us to you. You have given us peace with you through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ who died a death as a substitute for sinful mankind that all who would trust in him their sins are are removed as far as from the east is from the west but Lord we know we are a work in progress we know that we are told that that you have called us, that we might become more and more like your son Jesus. Help us to stop fighting and and insisting upon us being the ruler and master of our own life. Lord, I know the, the exact mess that is created when I choose how what I think is best to live. Help me and help us to trust you. Help me and help us to love you. Help us to walk in obedience. An obedience which you say will bring us joy and our joy will be full. Thank you for that you love us enough to call us out away from things that are harmful for us and point us toward things that are for our good even when we don't recognise them as being for our good at the time. And we thank you for Jesus who calls us to these things and calls us to even greater things. In his name.
Amen. Next week we will.